During the month of February, in celebration of National FFA Week, the WIN podcast series will feature a special episode weekly to highlight four extraordinary young women who are both current and former leaders of the FFA. WIN hopes to shine a spotlight on the FFA and the remarkable work they do promoting the importance of agriculture in shaping future farmers and agribusiness minds. Enjoy the episode! Welcome to WIN, the Women in Industry podcast, a production of the Communications Group. Welcome back to part two of Brooke Bradford's WIN podcast. Enjoy the show. Okay, we are back, and now it's time to do the rapid fire segment of the podcast. It's one of my favorite parts. It's just for fun. There's no right or wrong answers, and I'm just going to fire a few questions at you. Some are going to be weird, some not so weird, and you just Sounds say, good. yeah, you just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. I'll be real with you, I promise. I know that you will be. I have absolutely <laughs> no doubt that you will be. Okay, you had mentioned previously that coffee was one of your mm. um, one of your hobbies, so I want to know the most exotic place you've ever had coffee. Ooh, I think we went to Hawaii this summer, and they had, I've had a coffee that has coconut, like hints of coconut flavor in it, but I had this coconut coffee, it's, it was called like Kana coconut coffee in Hawaii and I took a sip and I loved it my mom and my sister drank it and they made the grossest faces but something about that Hawaiian coffee was really really special and good and I mean that's a magical place to be and I think the coffee was grown right there in Hawaii so 10 out of 10 that Hawaiian coffee probably the most exotic not for everyone's flavor profile but it worked for me. I love it. But see, that tells me that you really are the true coffee connoisseur because, <laughs> you know, you've got that more advanced taste and it's like, I don't know what the coffee version is of being a wine. Yes. What do they guess? not the barista. It's the wine. What do they call that guy? The wine it's sommelier. The sommelier. Yes. Thank uh-huh. you. <laughs> the sommelier. <laughs> okay. So, uh, okay. Here's your next question. What's your favorite thing to do in Washington, D.C.? Ooh, okay. I love sitting on the lawn of the Lincoln Memorial. I think it's so beautiful and pretty. So I think sightseeing. Also, there's all those food trucks out there. And so I think I got this blue raspberry vanilla shake. So blue raspberry vanilla Mm. shake. My mouth was blue. It wasn't cute for photos afterwards. But there was something really magical about being in that city that was so bustling with people, but also people who were like kind of serious and you knew they probably had an office and policy or government, you know, just two blocks away sitting in such a historic place. So that would be it. Very slow pace, probably not a, not a popular answer, but for me, I think it, it feels so artistic, almost like a, a page out of a book to just sit down and watch every people watch everyone doing their lives and, and be in that place. Okay. That's a great answer. What is one of your pet peeves? Ooh, one of my pet peeves. This is going to sound so silly, but burping. And I hate it because I realize every, you can't help it. Everyone burps. The burps just freak me out completely. So (laughs) people, especially, and this is funny, but like guys, when guys do like big burps, like, oh my goodness, my poor future husband someday. (laughs) But burps can be a pet peeve for me. Okay. That is really one of the most unusual and interesting answers I've ever gotten to that. Okay. Mm -hmm. What's an overused word that you use too much? An overused word. Mine is awesome. If that, oh, if that yeah. prompts anything, I, I say awesome about just darn near everything. Almost Unless everything. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Right. Awesome is an overused word. 
I think perfect. Perfect and extraordinary. Both of those words are, I think that words can be very intentional in their use, but we've overused them so much that things that used to be extraordinary maybe aren't as extraordinary anymore because extraordinary is not the right word because we've overused it. So I would say perfect and extraordinary. Okay, those are good. And I feel guilty because I am uh, guilty of using both of those. Sometimes I respond to an email with one word, perfect. All right. Are you a drive or fly person? Oh, fly. So I actually just went on a road trip. And at the end, my parents were like, well, how was it? And I said to my mom in our living room, it was incredible. But thank you so much for raising us to be a family that flies places and doesn't road trip because that was way too much time on the road. All right. Beach or mountains? Oh, beach. You know, I, I'm a natural. I freckle naturally. So I love being at the beach when I can get that little bit of sunburn and I start to freckle and my hair gets extra bleachy blonde and I can just read a book Oceanside. So definitely beach. Okay. One last question and then I'm going to turn you over to Carson. So if you're on a deserted island, you're stranded, who knows when you're going to get rescued? You will. You will get rescued in this scenario, but mm-hmm. who knows when? Besides your phone, and let's assume that maybe you have your phone for a couple of hours a day. Besides your phone, what is a must-have on your deserted island? I'm going to say coffee pot with coffee, which sounds silly, but even if I don't have food I like, if I have coffee, I'm probably going to be be pretty happy. So I'm going to go with coffee pot. Oh, that's a great answer. Great answer. And now we know that just about everything <laughs> can be made solar. So that's legit. You can have your like little solar coffee pot. Right. There you go. All right. Well, now thank you so much <laughs> for playing along with Rapid Fire. I'm going to turn you over to Carson. Yeah. Thanks, Lisa. I, I'm hoping that Island has, you know, coconuts or something so you can make your coconut coffee. Oh, you're so right. I know. Oh right. <laughs> so I, I got to say, I was sitting here cracking up. Perfect answer, by the way true bleed blue blue and gold ffa person talking about what you would change on the jacket Um, (laughs) nothing at all but i gotta say i i was just relating with you so much when you're talking about how hot it gets and cold and everything i had the exact same experience in indianapolis when i was Mm -hmm. in high school and then i don't know if you ever went to washington leadership conference but i just remember standing at the tomb of the unknown Uh, soldier and kids just dropping like flies you know passing out in the summer Literally, the year I went to Washington Leadership Conference, standing at the changing of the guard mm-hmm. at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and I can feel sweat dripping down my back, and I want to be so professional and, and pay my respects in just a really, you know, oh, Lord, am I looking for just a patriotic way, and all I could think about was the sweat going down my back. And as we were walking out, one of my friends passed out. And you know what? The next day, they let those kids wear polos and khakis instead of official (laughs) dress. And I was like, I would be in the group that has to pass out in order for them to let us change clothes. But it was incredible, none the least. No, you are. Everybody is thinking the exact same thing. And that (laughs) must be some kind of cruel rite of passage or something for those kids, I guess. I don't know. Brooke, thank you so much for your conversation Mm -hmm. today. And, you know, this this is a segment that we're doing in special recognition of National FFA Week. And so I want to take a moment. You've already gone through so much about FFA and it's had such a big, been been such a big part of your life and had such a big impact and everything. I want to spend just one more moment talking about that to, to really celebrate and, and bring mm-hmm. home National FFA Week for our listeners here. I, I think a lot of them are familiar with the organization and everything, but it it never hurts to go back and and revisit, you know, what it's doing for our young people out there like yourself, helping them prepare 
for the life ahead of them, not only personally, but in their careers and professionally. So take a couple of moments here and just tell us, you know, what value FFA has had for you and how, you know, just based off of what I'm seeing, how it's changed the course of your life. And what do you say to FFA members out there? So the first thing I think about just in terms of, you know, FFA was created to sustain the agricultural industry. So when we're talking about the benefit it has to our industry, I think my personal testament is just the best example. I went from thinking I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon who I said growing up, you probably could have told me chocolate milk came from a brown cow and I would have said, okay, you know, that makes sense because I just had no reference point for what the agricultural industry looked like, for how it worked, from for where our food came from. And if it weren't for my experience in FFA, I would have never had that perspective of what our industry actually looks like and the people who make it up. And over that five-year period of time, I went from being a girl who literally probably wouldn't have known where her food truly came from to being someone who could, you know, have extensive conversations about it. I competed in multiple leadership development events. I did discussion meet, one discussion meet at the state level where we're literally debating about solutions to ag issues. And before I wouldn't have even known what an ag issue was to giving speeches on what it looks like to market our industry. And I actually talked about the possibility of influencers for the ag industry, but I would have never been able to connect the dots of those two things and see true value in the way it would add to our industry if it weren't for the experience FFA gave me. So not only did it at 360 what I wanted to do professionally, but man, it just taught me so much about the opportunities that exist within the industry because I didn't believe that I had a place professionally in the ag industry with my interests until I had opportunities through FFA. So FFA introduced me to a program in Arkansas called Rice Reps with the Arkansas Rice Federation. And I spent nine months just telling the story of Arkansas rice farmers on social media. And it was the best experience ever. And it was exactly when I, you know, came home and told my parents, I can legitimately do that for a job, you know, and and it's going to be meaningful to me and to people in Arkansas and to farmers and to our industry. And as I continued to to increase my knowledge about what was going on and, and FFA hauled me to places like DC where I understood that policy and who we voted for actually has an impact on the food that we eat that I really started to see some purpose. And, and Lisa said earlier that that quote for me about, I always knew I wanted to change the world, but I didn't know I could do it in the ag industry. And it's so true. You know, I always, always knew I wanted to change the world, but the ag industry is where I realized, you know, food insecurity is such a huge issue, not only, you know, in my back door, but across the world. And the only people who can create a solution to that are people in the ag industry. And so when I realized that there was a problem that was critical to, to, you know, thousands, millions of people around the world. And that there was an organization right now that was preparing people to really work on it. Man, it was incredible. And it introduced me to mentors who helped me figure out what it looked like to be involved in policy, to advocate for good policy. And, you know, now, two years into college, I have a, a job at the National Ag Law Center where I'm actually working on I'm talking about policy that's happening and, and what's going on in D.C. and just around America in relation to the ag industry, but none of that would have happened. And my awareness wouldn't be there if it weren't for, for joining FFA and, and wearing that blue corduroy jacket. So professionally, man, it did everything to set me up to know the right people and to, to have those resources that have just been immeasurably valuable to me. And then when I think about my personal life, whoa, just the people first and foremost, you know, the, the most incredible experience I had as a state officer was a, a phone call with an FFA member and, he had been to two of our summer camps, and when he came to the second summer camp, I told him, I was like, man, I'm just really glad you're here because I missed your, like, I missed your personality. You're so fun. I missed having you in the room, and 
two months later, he called me and I was sitting in my, my dorm, Reed Hall, the University of Arkansas. I'll never forget it. And he said, Brooke, I just wanted to tell you that I've never, I've never felt more loved than I did when you, you said that to me. And I realized in an instant, the opportunity we have to make an impact on people, whether we even mean to or not. Because when I told him I missed him, it, it wasn't because I thought I was going to change his life. It's just because I really missed him. But FFA gave me an opportunity to to be a person who could speak that life into people and could make sure that people felt loved and valued. And that's what I received continually from people from the time I was an eighth grader to going through the national officer candidacy process. You know, I was with people who made sure that I was valued and, and seen and loved and they elevated me to, to compete at the highest level and just coached me and guided me. And if, if you're a kid who wants to do something in the world, and I, I hope you do, because everyone should know that they have the power and the ability to, if they'll just take that step of faith and, and try it out and zip up that blue quarter jacket, then you're going to meet people who want to speak life into you, who want to figure out how to make your dreams come true and figure out if there's a place for you to do it in the ag industry. And I'll tell you there more than likely is. And for me, it's that meeting place of the people in the industry that makes FFA so special and it. It made it that valuable to my life. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. You know, I'm well into over a decade in my professional career and I'm sitting here taking notes on my end because <laughs> one of the things that FFA strives to do is to really cultivate that next generation of experts and workers, you know, for the ag industry. And that's something that the ag industry relies on FFA for. It's kind of a symbiotic relationship. But kind of what I'm seeing in my career, we often are dealing, you know, a lot of our clients are ag related and everything. And so we are often trying to educate our clients on the value of social media or digital marketing or these kind of things. And it occurs to me that, you know, while we're while FFA is doing a great job in preparing students to become the next generation workforce, are we seeing that same kind of pace happening in the industry itself? Is that are those mm-hmm. new communications and technologies are they being adopted as as quickly and as readily as we need them to be to stay up with your generation? Here you are, you're as Lisa said, under twenty five, or as you said, substantially under twenty five. <laughs> um, so I mean, you're so well versed in in marketing and have such a an acute grasp of of marketing principles and things. What are your thoughts on the ag industry right now? Are are they keeping pace? Are they reaching your generation and being effective mm. with that? You know, I think in terms of pace, our industry currently does a really incredible job of keeping our technological pace up, right? So like I think I just saw an article about a fully automated, 100% remotely controlled tractor from John Deere. I want to believe that's what it was. And so I think technology-wise, we're doing an incredible job. And I even think back to like the creation of Uh, extension agents you know they were created to help have a middleman to disseminate the information we were getting from land-grant universities and the research and information and the new technologies that were being discovered figuring out that those extension agents could be the people who got you know farmers in their county to really understand how to use it to implement those ideas and you know I don't think it happens at the exact same pace but I do think that there's an opportunity for it to happen so I think about SAEs which are supervised agricultural experiences and The point of those is that FFA is a part of ag education and ag education is a part of career and technical education. And so the whole point of those ag classrooms are to prepare students for careers. And so there are people in our community, right, who have careers in ag or ag-related industries. And SAEs are an opportunity for FFA members and ag students to 
practice some of those career skills by getting internships, by getting part-time jobs, by job shadowing people who are in those industries. And my hope is that in really investing in SAEs and and really getting all students involved in an SAE in depthly and not just, you know, registering for them one, but to have them really invest in SAE, there is an opportunity for our students to learn from the people they work under, but also for the people who employ them to to listen in to the ideas that they have and to just kind of the perspective that they share. And so another opportunity I think that is is really cool and, and unique in terms of the way that we allow young people to have an influence in what's going on currently in our industry is the World Food Prize. So Borlaug scholars do research with the World Food Prize where they write about an ag issue and solutions to it. I participated in this and I talked about food insecurity in Puerto Rico and a lack of sustainability efforts in relation to natural disasters. And so I picked a real issue that was happening and I wrote real ideas for policy, for practices that I think could genuinely change the lives of, of people in Puerto Rico. And, and there are students across America who do that every year. So I think we've taken the time to build good avenues for that information to be shared between generations. But I think that there's always room for improvement because I know that historically as an industry, we haven't been the fastest paced in terms of adopting new technologies, ideas, and practices. Absolutely. And it's so funny that you mentioned the Borlaug Award. We were actually just as a company in one of our meetings recently talking about Norman Borlaug mm-hmm. and, and all the all of his influences that he had with Green Revolution and everything else. So mm-hmm. I, anyway, just a little side note there. But but one one thing that sticks out to me, you know, you mentioned earlier about how you spent time as a rice rep talking mm-hmm. about, you know, the industry and the food itself and everything else. And and you use social media to communicate that. How important is it right now for the industry, for even the individual agriculturalists to be talking about what they do? I think you just shared something very specific there about all that agriculture as an industry, not only you know here nationally, but globally, what's going on to support society, you know, to feed and clothe it and just all the advances that it's making to support civilization itself, how important that is, is it just a basic need? How important is that? Right now, there's all this, these, these good stories out there. How, how can an individual, let alone an industry, share that story? Individually, I think it has a lot to do with being an advocate, which sounds really silly, but I truly believe for the agricultural industry to thrive at the highest capacity, we need it to, then we need policy and regulation that gives them the, the space and the ability to do that while still assuring that we're producing in a sustainable, efficient manner. We're food is new, you know, high in nutrition and that we're doing it the right way. And I, I believe farmers and ranchers are doing that. But sometimes I think they battle red tape that has to do with misinformed consumers. And so if someone is a part of our industry and they want to, they want to be an advocate, they want to have these conversations about what's going on in the world. My advice would be to, to be one who isn't afraid to speak up if you see a problem or, or something you don't agree with. I think about labeling is something I'm really passionate about. And I see lots of posts about labeling that simply aren't accurate. So taking the time to stand up for what's actually happening in the ag industry to make sure that you tell uh, mental health and farming and ranching has actually recently become a significant conversation to make sure that you are telling farmers and ranchers that you know that you support them and to help share their stories when you have the opportunity to buy local and support a a farmer in your region to take the opportunity to do that because it's becoming more and more visible you know, how much outsourcing of food and grocery stores is and and what does it look like to support people locally if they maybe aren't getting the support that they need. And then also it's going to sound cheesy, but 
I think that if you invest in young people, whether that's through 4-H or through FFA or Manners, which is an agricultural organization for minority students, when you take the time to invest in people who are going to be 100% of your future, then you're someone who is being an advocate of of our industry. And, and ultimately, you know, it's it's not easy to change someone's mind if they've already got a set opinion on something. But it is much easier to educate people at a young age so that they grow up with the, an accurate vision of what the industry has. So, you know, in my dream world, every student in every high school in America would be a part of an ag education class. And there would be curriculum for elementary and intermediate students who at some point through their science classes are introduced to what food systems look like. Because it took me years and years, even as someone heavily involved in our industry, to understand what a food system was and why it mattered. And, you know, it shouldn't take, you know, conversations about food system really flared up during COVID whenever there was no meat on shelves and, and people didn't understand why. And it's because they didn't understand food systems and, and how insecure our food systems and weak our food systems had gotten over time just because of like those big four packing, the big four in the packing industry. And so I think having conversations about the importance of local and regional and national and world food systems at a younger age so people can understand how to support local and regional food systems will ultimately help support our industry in general and hopefully raise up a generation of people who naturally have a tendency to know that farmers and ranchers really have our best interest in hearts in terms of providing not only for America, but for the world. And I think that if, if people, more people are in a dreamy world, all people had that belief, then it would really allow for farmers and ranchers to do their job in a way that can meet those food insecurity needs that currently exist. Absolutely. I totally agree. And, and you know, what's interesting is that a lot of that, you know, a big bulk of that conversation is happening online, digitally, socially, you know, so that in itself means that you know, we, we need to be where that conversation is happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we have seen, personally, I feel like I see it actually getting a little better. It's improving. But several years ago, even, you know, a few years ago, we were seeing where agriculture did not have much of a voice um, mm-hmm. out there. Um, they were they were not filling that space, and we were allowing people who opposed opponents of agriculture, they were coming in, stepping in, and telling our story for us. And that, I mm-hmm. think, has led to this big divide. What, what's your thoughts about that? I would agree 100%. I'm a huge, huge believer in the fact that, you know, there's space that exists for you in, in every asset of the world. But if you don't take it up, then someone else will. And if you don't tell your story, someone else will. And I agree that we've done a better job of telling our stories. But I will say, you know, we have a tendency, a pitfall of our industry is we have a tendency to share our story, but to share it to people who are already a part of our audience. And when I, when I think about the future of ad communication specifically, I think we've got to be creative about ways of, of reaching people we haven't already met, you know, because people who support the ag industry, I had someone tell me this rule once and it's like 20% of people are always going to be in your corner. And then they're going to be six, no matter what, you know, like 100% they're in your corner. I think the same could be said for the ag industry. And then there's 60% that majority of the time are going to be in your favor. And, and maybe they don't have a super, you know, they're not like having it, they're not tied to it forever, but they have a general liking in, of you or of your industry. And then there are 20% who no matter what aren't going to support you for whatever reason. So when I think about that idea, which I generally agree with for the agricultural industry, sometimes we have a tendency to, to just keep reaching that 20% who 100% is with us. And man, we want to keep them, but I, I don't think that we are at high risk of losing them. And so I think we've got to figure out how to really meet that 60% that we're just brushing by and figuring out how to really target it on them to, to increase our visibility. And I think we've got to be creative about who we work with, be that companies or influencers or, or celebrities and, and be intentional about finding people who 
are in groups we aren't in quite yet, but who also can authentically represent what agricultural is doing because no one likes for an idea to be forced on them. But I think if they have time to adapt to liking an idea because they genuinely see value in it, then there's a lot of opportunity for us to have good, you know, good retention. I think it's the same thing as thinking about a brand collaboration, which I talked about earlier. You know, it's got to make sense who we're using to tell our story. But I think that we've got to be intentional about finding people outside of our industry and educating them so that they can be a voice. And I think that'll have to, it'll require some investment from from people in our industry, whether that's lobbying groups or specific industries like the you know Arkansas Rice Federation or the Soybean Association. And we just got to figure out who can tell that story and, and reach the people we aren't currently reaching. But I do think it's a big a big opportunity in the future if we we want to continue to have policy on our side, especially with the farm bill coming up. Absolutely. I would I would totally agree with that. And it's it's interesting to hear some of the things that you talk about here. You know, the communications group, we actually this year have released a list of our 2022 ag marketing trends. And some of the things that you've hit on um, actually coincide with some of those things on the list there. So I, I see some alignment there going on. It's, that's really interesting, you know, and one of the one of the questions I have for you is that, you know, when when we're talking to some of our clients at times, they, you know, obviously they're of a generation that didn't grow up with with social media. It's new to them. They're still kind of figuring it out in some time, in some ways. But, you know, we're often finding ourselves in a position of trying to convince them of the value of it. And there's so much change going on right now in the social media sphere. You know, Facebook is now meta and it's, you know, uh, changing its algorithm constantly. Instagram, same way, all these different things fluctuating. And so they bring oftentimes a lot of good questions to us, you know, where should we be focusing, you know, our investment in social media and these kind of things if if the algorithm or whatever else is playing against us, so to speak, sometimes. Or we're seeing two trends where organic is not getting as much attention as paid social media anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to kind of make that case. So I'm interested to hear as somebody from from your generation who you look look how well you've done with social media mm-hmm. in your in your short time on this earth. You you've done so <laughs> great with it. You know, the the industry is only getting younger, so to mm-hmm. speak. You know, we're we're at a point where we're seeing a shift in our age groups coming in and out of the industry. So what would you say to to our clients out there who question the value of social media and digital marketing? Well, I think the the biggest example I just have to use is to think about COVID. And, and I'm sure you've heard this idea before, but, you know, when COVID happened and, and people locked down for the first time, so many businesses had to figure out a way to shift 100% to meeting their clients, their customers, to doing business virtually. And that happened, you know, in the snap of a finger and an instant, instant. And, and we saw we saw a lot of growth in terms of online part, like online selling platforms. I think about like Shopify, how much it exploded when it shipped virtually and, and thinking about TikTok and how much it exploded during COVID because that's where everyone was, was virtual. And, you know, the incredible thing about social media is you have an opportunity to meet an endless amount of people, right? So if I think about other forms of traditional marketing, if we order brochures, right, that can only reach the number of people who you print that many brochures. If you think about billboards, that's only going to reach people who drive through a certain region. If you think about radio ads, that's only going to reach people who can, you know, get on that radio station. But the incredible thing about social media is there's there's no limit. There's no cap to who can see it, unless you're private, of course, and no one should be private if they're trying to market themselves on social media. So I just think about, you know, if you want an endless opportunity 
for a benefit of your investment and in marketing, then social media is the place to do it. And then, you know, I think about when we talk about the change in, in marketing, the change in Instagram and Facebook and algorithms and trends and all of that, you know, my piece of advice or my encouragement or, or simple just stance on this is and I, I talk about branding a lot because I think it has everything to do with branding. I think about designer companies, you know, they've done an incredible job of staying relevant, not just because they're designer, but because people knew what they could expect from the brand because they well established what their brand looked like, what it represented and, and what people could expect to see. And I think that when everyone, and that sounds really cheesy, right? Like how does a rice farmer have a brand? But you can figure out what your priorities are, figure out what you genuinely look like, what you want your consumers to know about you and, and create a brand out of that. You know, for me, literally coffee, the color pink and the word love, like that is my brand summed up in three words. So figure out what your three words for, for your brand can be. And I think when you are consistent in representing that brand and people can, can sense that consistency from you and make you very identifiable, I think it has everything to do with people being able to go, oh, it makes perfect sense that Brooke did that, or it makes perfect sense that Gucci did that, or it makes perfect sense that the Soybean Association did that because it, it matches their brand precisely. But then there's an opportunity to sustain through those changes of social media. I mean, there is always room to evolve and to catch a new trend, but I think that you can be trendy and still have a consistent brand. And it's just a matter of finding that middle ground. And if you believe in the investment and you, you see value in having the ability to reach literally no, no limit to amount of people for free, you know, because it doesn't cost to post on social media, there are opportunities to invest, whether that's an in influencer marketing or in sponsored posts. So if you choose to do that, that opportunity exists there. And then just be patient and creating a brand that is consistent and authentic and represents who you are in an identifiable way. And I think that you will see success in marketing on social media. Absolutely. And I I will say too, that I think part of a brand, a successful brand is being flexible as well. You know, we've seen, like, like you said, the pandemic has brought on this whole shift of new thinking. You know, we're seeing brands that are, are really changing who they've always been, so to speak. They, they are becoming more transparent. They're becoming more vulnerable. They're they're being more authentic, you know, since the pandemic, and they're they're trying to be more personable. Which I can only imagine for some of these companies, there's a lot of growing pains that come mm -hmm. in with that. So as we as we face change, significant change in our world and our environment and everything, how important do you think it is for a brand to to be able to adapt? You know, is, is that built into your brand? Is the shelf life, the structure and character of your brand, is it going to survive changes? Hmm, I think it can. You know, I think you just have to, I think it has everything to do with evaluating what you're willing to give on, if that makes sense. And I do think there absolutely will always be times when you have to change things up, when you have to take a step in a new direction or you have to, to reformat in a sense. But I think that you can you can look a little different and still be the same. So the, the reason why you started the company can be the same, right? The faces of the company can be the same. The purpose or the mission of the company can be the same. Their vision statement can be the same. And maybe it looks a little different. So I think if you always ask yourself the question, like, does this represent who we are? Does it represent what we want to offer our clients or our customers? Or, or does it represent us? And if so, if it's going to add value to our customers by doing that, then, then it probably is a worthwhile change. And I also think you never will have the opportunity to benefit from a risk if you aren't willing to say yes to taking it. So I think absolutely, if you stay authentic to who you are, but also if growth is something you want to see, being brave enough to make those changes, 
while again, I'll use the word authentic, being authentic to who you are, I think that it can be a really great opportunity. Recognize it's not going to be perfect overnight. There are going to be those growing pains, but I think that the reward of that risk will, will more than likely pay off, or at least I hope it does. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and maybe you agree or disagree with this next comment. You know, they there is that phrase that content is king, and I mm. think ultimately that is going to is going to be what drives success for any brand that's out there on social media or, or putting content out there. When it comes to creating content, I'm interested as someone who has enjoyed as much success as you have. How do you create good content? Mm. What what is good content and kind of a follow-up to that, you know, where do you get your personal inspiration and, and what fires your creativity? Yeah, so I think first of all, I talked about this earlier, I think it's really easy to identify when something is fake or doesn't feel real. And so I think that if you can do something that feels natural for your company, that is going to be attractive to people because they're going to be, be able to identify with it and and probably see a lot of value in it. Like I remember, I think I walked into Chick-fil-A once and there was a p- picture in the lobby, like one of those cutouts of the guy who started Chick-fil-A. And I just remember thinking that that was the coolest thing ever, that I could legitimately see the guy who was behind it all. And I think that's a perfect example of when you do something that's natural. And, and I think I talked about identify, like being able to identify something earlier. When you create content where someone can go, oh my gosh, that's their CEO, I know them. Or that's the CEO's granddaughter, I know them. Or that's Pat who works in the production line. Like when companies take the time to, to story tell about the people who are part of their company and and make it more than just a product or, or more than just a, a service you're offering, but make it about the people who create the product and the people who offer the service. We're way more likely to buy into people, I think, than we are products naturally and continue to retain investment. Like I'm way more likely to keep going to the same coffee shop because I love the person, the barista who works there, right? I'm not because the coffee's necessarily a million times more special than what I could get at two stores down the road. So when I think about branding, I just think about, for one, is this going to add value to people's life in some way? And then for two, is it authentic to who Brooke is? You know, are they going to say it and see it and go, that makes perfect sense? And then more than that, I also think that sometimes, and, and maybe this is more accurate to my social media because it is, you know, it's fun. Like I, I'm not running a company social media account, but I want it to feel like it inspires people be that to, to seek joy or to go to a fun place or to take the time to invest in themselves or just to try wearing a new color. But I think that when you do something that it sparks something in someone else so they don't just scroll right by it, that's what really creates good content. And then when I think about Instagram stories as content specifically, because in my opinion, Instagram stories are the place of, of the best content. I even think about brand collaborations I see with, with influencers with you know, millions of followers, they may post on their feed every day or every other day, but there's probably going to be eight to 10, if not 20 or 30 Instagram stories that they post every day, because that offers a very direct way to reach their followers. And that's honestly where I see a lot of my successes on my Instagram stories, where people feel like they're actually having a conversation with me. And I watch people who have millions of followers do that. And I think I'm friends with that person. And I'm definitely not, but just watching them makes me feel like that. And I think that's what inspires me is that I know that I can create that kind of personal connection through my content if I'm just intentional enough to do it. And for me, Instagram stories is absolutely the place to do that. I follow some people who are big influences. Anna Grace Newell is a girl who graduated from the University of Arkansas and does social media full-time in Nashville now. And she's so fun to me because 
I feel like I'm watching her life. She's always encouraging and bright and she shares her pursuits just in a really authentic way. And I think that's a huge reason why I feel like I can share my pursuits as an authentic way is because I watch someone else do it. And I think all of us find someone that we, we look up to or that we see parts of ourselves in. We, we try to look like them. You know, we try to imitate that in some way. And I mean, I know that I've done it. And so I think that when I can do that for other people and maybe it encourages them to use Instagram as a place where they can build community or advocate for themselves or their brand, then I think there can be a lot of success. Yeah, well, and, and you just ended right there in a way that everything you said really has just confirmed for me something that we've talked about internally as an agency when it comes to strategy and things like that, focusing more on building the community aspect. That's what mm-hmm. people are more interested in. It's not product-driven so much or or business-oriented. It's it's finding people who who feel like you, you know, mm-hmm. and, and are like-minded in that way. And we have seen a lot of success with our clients and the, the accounts and things that we have managed by focusing more on community content, things that, that build that sense of familiarity rather than, you know, talking about ourselves as a company or whatever else mm-hmm. where we like to talk about you rather, mm-hmm. you know, and, and bring that conversation in. So we've seen a lot of success with that. So I, I want to ask you one more question and then I'm going to kind of switch gears here a little bit. But Brooke, when it when it comes to being an influencer, Tell, tell us again kind of how that started. You, They reached out to you, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Okay. And when they reached out to you to, to get you to work with them, you, you kind of started seeing kind of what was on offer and those kind of mm-hmm. things. And you, you didn't bite necessarily at the percentages off or whatever else. What were you looking for? And you talked about a contract. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about what was enticing to you, what you looked for when you collaborated with a brand. I think the first thing I think is really valuable is there's a tendency of some brands, you know, they almost always give you a code of some kind. So when you post, you can use code Brooke Bradford 10 and your followers will get 10% off. And sometimes companies will only offer you those contracts back if you have, you know, a, a good return on those codes. And I think something that isn't attractive to me in a collaboration deal is if that's the only thing that can assure I get a second contract, right? Because when I see something for the first time, I may not buy it. But when I see it three or four times, I may be more likely to buy it. I think about that with Anna Grace, who I mentioned earlier. She posted about these whitening strips. And the first time I thought, oh, that's that's cool. But they're they're too expensive. I don't want to buy them. About the fourth or fifth time I saw her post about them, I was really bought into wanting to get these whitening strips. So, of course, I ordered them. And I posted about them on my Instagram story. And then, literally, I want to say six months later, maybe, that company reaches out to me about wanting to send me the whitening strips. And that's what's attracted to me. Whenever I post about something I'm genuinely invested in or something that I'm aligned with, a company sees value in the fact that I'm already customer or that I already represent what their brand is trying to be or or who their ideal brand image is. And then they reach out to me because of that, not just because you know sometimes I'll get an email that's, hey, we saw you have a really great following on Instagram and we think that you would be great to promote our product. Product, Okay, I, I appreciate that you see value in numbers, but do you see value in the kind of content I create? Did you scroll down? Uh, you know, sometimes I'll have people say, oh my gosh, we saw your post from October 28th and we just thought she looks perfect for, like we loved your glasses or we loved this dress and we thought when we read your caption, we just realized you were perfect for your brand. So when I think about accepting those contracts and what makes sense to influencing, I want them to be as intentional and 
reaching out to me to work with them is I will be in the way that I promote their products because I don't want to just be another story they reshare on their Instagram once and then and forget about forever and, and it's a one-term deal it's not a revolving door for me it's about you know really building something and that's what means a lot to me is when companies want to build something with me and they don't want to use my followers as a, a one-time hit to maybe get three or four orders right and let me ask you too you know how do you balance that you know staying true to your personal brand and everything being authentic and those kind of things without getting too salesy. Cause I mean, that's mm. kind of the purpose of that. How do you, how oh, do you yeah. go about balancing that? I think for one, the first thing is just, you can never, I will never promote a product. I don't actually use and love. I think that has a huge, huge deal to do with it. And then I think about trying to create organic content, which we've, we've kind of talked about. And I tried to make sure when I'm promoting something, it's not because I just was like, oh, wait, that's due today and I need to record it. But it's because I'm genuinely using the teeth whitening strips before an interview or I'm actually using the protein powder before I go to work out. Or I, I try to tie it into a genuine part of my life so that people know I'm not just pushing it because I can, but because it's something I genuinely use or believe in. And then my other general rule is I really try as hard as I can to if I do something like a collaboration, I try to only do a major collaboration like one or two a month. Now, do I think that's realistic if you want to be a full-time influencer? Probably not. But I think you can compensate for that with doing things like, you know, linking items where you make a commission, but you aren't necessarily paid to post about it. So it doesn't quite look the same to followers to, to visually, you know, that like I'm just pushing ads 100% of the time. So finding companies you genuinely use and agree with reaching out to companies where if there's a product you use every day, like you can always find an email for someone who's in PR or reach, reach out to any email. I've, I've found people on LinkedIn before who work at companies as a means to try and reach out to them about working together. And it's a two way street. You know, you're not always going to get emails from your dream companies, but if you offer the opportunity to work together, maybe, maybe it will work, but you never know until you put your name in the hat. That's what happened with me with smart suites is, I found a portal on one of their career websites where you could submit the opportunity to be a part of their influencing collaborations and it didn't happen the first few times, but it finally did happen. And so I think whenever you, you take the time to find companies you already genuinely use and love and you make sure that that's not the only story you're telling, you know, people can still see what's going on in my life, but they also happen to know what teeth whitening strips I use and what my favorite candy is. And so that's what that balance looks like for me. Yeah. And so last question on this topic, what advice would you give to our mm. listeners out there interested in, you know, maybe pursuing a career as an influencer? Yeah, and influencing. I think the first thing I would say is be patient. I mean, it's taken me, I really started, I think I did my first collaboration my junior year of high school. So it's only been, I guess this would be year four. So four years in, and I'm still just at the tip of the iceberg of working with, with bigger companies. And I don't always make money off of the initial collaboration, sometimes it's just free product and the opportunity to make commission. But, you know, baby steps, right? Stepping stones to get there. And when you produce content for a nationally known brand, then it's successful. And then it's going to make other brands more likely to want to buy into that success you're able to create. I would also recommend, you know, you don't have to be sent something for free to post about it. You know, post about the things you're already using, post about what your life already looks like. My sister is the best about reminding me that, 
people will literally watch and engage with almost anything. So I was opening some books the other day and she got mad at me because I didn't do an unboxing video on TikTok. And she's like, people love to watch that. So just know anything can blow up. Anything can be successful. So don't be afraid to put yourself out there and post things that maybe you're doing every day that you don't realize other people may see value in because you never know. Be patient. Don't be afraid to ask for opportunities. So, I mean, I've asked boutiques if they would work with me. I've emailed companies about working with them, filled out those forms. And then I think a big part of it too, and it sounds silly, my mom always says I would take a picture anywhere and not be embarrassed about it. But you really just have to see value in the work that you're trying to do because it is so visible to people. So I've had photo shoots in the middle of coffee shops full of customers and it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. Absolutely not. But I realize the value that it can have in creating content that people are going to engage with and enjoy and that's fun. And so I think sometimes you just have to be afraid or not be afraid to, to take that risk and put yourself out there and to do it over and over and over again, because consistency really truly is key. And not every one of your posts are going to go viral or, or get great retention, but the very next one could. And so I think just keep being consistent and pursuing building an honest brand that's authentic to you and you know i hope that you'll be successful with it that's awesome thank you so much for your perspective on that you know that influencer marketing is you know just one of those tools that you know we in the industry use and and uh, Mm -hmm. it's becoming more and more effective you know as we as you said tap into other people's circles and their their spheres of influence and those kind of things so Brooke, I want to do something that I don't know that we've ever done on this podcast before. You know, normally Lisa and I are the hosts and we come prepared with the questions. But, you know, you you talked about what a big influence FFA has had in your life and everything. But it's clear that you are much more than just FFA. Mm. But but it is it is clear, too, that FFA, I think, has had a a part in every part of you. So Mm -hmm. but I, I, I want to kind of turn the tables a little bit and ask, what do you want to talk about today? I know that there's just so much going on uh, in the world of Brooke. I, I am interested to know what what you are interested in talking about. You know, I think something I love is hearing about people's journey to where they are. Um, I was recently in, the, in an interview yesterday, and I was talking about one of the reasons I love to read books, especially about like autobiographies, about people's lives or their perspectives on, on leadership or just life the self-help book or whatever is that we get to like learn from people's experiences. So I would love if I could hear, especially as a young professional who wants to go into marketing and an ever-changing industry, what did it look like for you to get from wherever you started to your this position in marketing? And, and how do you think that you can stay relevant in the future? Oh, man, that is that is a great question. I started my career off on on very uncertain steps. I had graduated from Oklahoma State University with my degree in agricultural communications, Mm -hmm. and I went for about two weeks sweating, thinking that I was going to be just a failure in life because I had no job and all my friends did as I exited college. Mm -hmm. And so I lingered there for a while. I had kind of a carrot hanging out there from Oklahoma Farm Bureau. And mm. they were offering me a field position, but were waiting to hear back from somebody else at the time. They were ho- they were hoping for their first choice. And then in the meantime, there was this opportunity out in Arkansas where I knew nobody. And it was in Little Rock. It was with the Arkansas Cattlemen's Association. Huh. So I reached out to the uh, executive vice president out there. His name was Adam McClung. 
And he basically, I talked to him a couple of times and he just ignored me time after time. <laughs> and I, I was starting to get worried thinking I cannot live another summer at home with my parents. So mm-hmm. I've got to, I got to figure this one out. So I, I kind of just bugged everybody until I finally got Adam back on the phone. I said, look, I really need to know, are you, are you going to offer me this job or not? And he said, why don't you come out here and, and we'll talk about it. So I drove out there on a Friday waited in the parking lot for about an hour while he finished a conversation on his phone in his truck. And he finally took me inside, talked to me for a little bit while we had lunch and everything. And it was a Friday. He hired me and he said, let's start work on Monday. So, yes. So of course, you know, between Oklahoma and Little Rock, it was about a five hour drive one way. So went back home gathered up just enough clothes for a week and an air mattress (laughs) and my mom packed up with me and and we drove back out and started my first day on Monday and while I was kind of being showed the ropes my mom went out and she set me up with an apartment and got me all hooked up with utilities and TV and all of that stuff so definitely you know by the support of my mom I mean my my parents you know they they really took care of me there so I, I did that I had no idea kind of what what I was getting into necessarily. I was raised on a farm, grew up with cattle and everything else. So it seemed like a natural fit. But part of my duties there was to publish a magazine monthly. Mm. And I had never really published a magazine before. I had had one class in that. So that was kind of scary. And I, I had the fortune of, I'll give a shout out to Autumn Furman. She had the position before me and she was the magazine editor there. And she showed me everything that she knew. And she told me when she left, she said, now I've done it this way. I expect you take over and make it better from here. And so that kind of became my personal mission uh, while I was there is to just do the best that I could with it. And I was there for four years. And and during that time, we saw tremendous growth with the magazine. I actually redesigned it for the first time in its 60-year history. Wow. We grew the the ad revenue for that magazine. It became uh, much more profitable. We Part of my duties, too, was to organize the annual convention and trade show. And while I was there, we started bringing in uh, corporate sponsors. We added you know, new components to it and made it into this big deal. It actually became and is still Arkansas's largest farm and ranch show because of the contributions that I put into that. So it was just being like you, being creative, thinking outside the box, and just kind of injecting some new ideas into something that had been around for a long time. And just trying to look at it a different way. And it was really, really cool to see all the changes that happened there during that time. The magazine started getting a lot of attention. We started seeing other cattlemen's associations from around the country start to kind of emulate some of what we were doing with the convention as well. And right before I I moved on, I was actually recognized as the uh, 2015 state communicator by the National Cattlemen's Association beef association so it had a national award honor there to hang my hat on i guess there for a while and that was so gratifying to see mm-hmm. to see happen but i uh i got the itch to move back to oklahoma be around friends and family and everything and uh, had the opportunity to go and work for mr ron hayes who a lot of folks might know him from back in oklahoma as the the voice of oklahoma agriculture he was the longtime anchor and founder of the Radio Oklahoma Ag Network. So that was my first foray into ag broadcasting and served as an ag reporter there covering all facets of the industry and just really opened my eyes to a lot of things there, showed me the ropes of that industry. And so between the the two opportunities there, you know, I was was the director of communications at the Cattlemen's Association. So 
handling all social media, website, magazine, learned about advertising and sales, you know, to event planning, nonprofit and association work, management, things like that. So that was huge. And then with the, the radio gig there, that taught me a lot about broadcasting and reporting and journalism and things like that. So all of that just kind of culminated during a, a period in my life when I was dating a young lady from Little Rock. Uh, we had just started dating right before I left. And it was because of the magazine that I worked for. I actually did a story on her father who ranches out of uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And so I met the parents first kind of deal. And she stopped by the office to get a copy of that magazine. And the rest is history. We actually got married about a year ago. And <gasps> no so, way. Yes. And so um, <laughs> it's just, it's kind of weird how that all worked out. So my career has impacted my life in many different ways and mm. even even uh, led me to my who would be my future wife. So she brought me back to Little Rock and it was because of her that I landed my position with the communications group. And it's been so cool to see this kind of come full circle for me because back in college, I actually interned for Naki Turnbow Frank Public Relations. So kind of started my professional career in public relations and have ended it here at this point in life in the same in the same area. So thanks to Lisa and, and Cassie and the whole team here at the communications group just have opened my eyes to all that public relations and marketing is and continue to learn. Lisa will be the first to tell you that one of the criteria things that it, that it is for her to stay in a position is that she must continue to learn something. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I can say from experience here, I've been here working on my third year now that uh, I continue to learn something every day. And it's just such a fun thing that allows me to continue to work in the ag industry, working with ag clients. And it's really cool too, to be able to use, you know, my skill set and what I do to give back to my community, you know, the ag community and, and help, help the ag industry continue to be prosperous here in the state. So it's, it's been really cool to, to do that. And, and through these three positions, I have basically been able to experience all facets of the communications field and and that's something that they tell you at Oklahoma State when you get into agricultural communications is that the program is a mile long and an inch deep. And they'll cover mm. everything. And it's up to you to figure out where you kind of fall into and, and, and dig that hole a little bit deeper, I guess. But for me, I love it all. And so it's, I've had a, a very great fortune to be able to experience all of those different fields of communication and, and really you know, just experience it all. So it's been really cool for me. That's a great question. Yeah, that's incredible. No, I think, you know, as a, as a young professional, even, you know, applying for internships right now and, and thinking about jobs in the future, it can be really scary and uncertain. As you said, that fear of graduating and, and not having a job and that safety, the lack of safety we feel like we feel by not having something assured can be scary, but it's refreshing to to know that things things end up working out perfectly and maybe you meet your wife along the way, which I think is really <laughs> special. No, I love that. I know Oklahoma State has an incredible ag comm program, has some great friends out there that are in that. And, you know, I think it's funny because as an ag comm student, I hear so many jokes about ag comm, ag mom. Are you familiar with this? I, I have heard this. Running fact, joke. I think we've had uh, one of our guests on this podcast mention that before. Yes. So there's this like, I don't know why this stigma around if you're a girl who is an ag comm major that you don't actually care about getting a degree. You just want to be a mom and an ag comm degree is an easy avenue for doing that. And I definitely fight that stigma as hard as I can in terms of talking about job opportunities, about growth opportunities, and just and really 
people don't understand that there's legitimately jobs for people in agcom, for people in ag leadership and publications and sales and, and marketing. And so it's so refreshing to hear that in, you know, just a handful of years for you, you've had multiple opportunities to move and grow and choose as you please and, and have that that career fluidity, but but also to have solid careers, which is exciting for me and, and hopefully will convince others to know that, you know, being an agcom major or having an agcom degree is not just going to be useful, but it's really going to provide opportunities. And I think that that makes me feel good as an agcom major. So I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the communications field, there will always be opportunity there. In fact, I think it's one of the fastest growing fields out there right now in the ag industry, as well as other industries. You know, as, as we get more diverse in our communications technology with social media and everything else, there's just this bigger need out there for communicators to share all that, that companies are doing out there. And, and the landscape, honestly, is becoming more competitive. So we need people like you who are creative storytellers and, and people who can create compelling messages to, to reach audiences because you have just so many more companies out there vying for the attention in targeted ways now, trying to get on the, the news feed or in front of people somehow to get their message across. And so it's, it's an extremely important position to be in and everything. And that's what we do at the communications group is we help kind of cut through that noise for our clients. We put our skills to the test to, to reach audiences in the most effective way. So that's kind of what it's all about and everything. So I'm glad to hear that you appreciate that and that you see the value in that and everything. So Brooke, it's been so good talking to you. Are, are there any final questions before we turn it over to Lisa? I'm sure she's got some follow-up questions she wants to kind of wrap us up with today. No, I think I'm good, Carson. You you covered all the bases and I loved it. So Awesome. Well, Lisa, I'm going to turn it over to you and I'm sure you've got a couple of final questions for, for Brooke. I do. I do have a couple of final questions. I would also like to point out once again that you heard it here first. Brooke Bradford is going to be running something someday soon. <laughs> and I really, I've just been so intrigued by everything you've had to offer your perspective on everything. And to be so young, to have such an extensive knowledge of marketing is pretty impressive to me. But I want to hear about, I've got, I've got two wrap-up questions. We've kept you for a really long time and I, I, <laughs> I really appreciate you giving us so much of your time today. So, you know, in the last couple of years, I would say, it's funny, you made that comment about the ag com degree, ag mom thing. But I would say in the last couple of years, women's influence in the workplace has really changed dramatically. And I mm -hmm. am interested to hear in what your thoughts are about women in the workplace. You know, I think I'm an ag leadership. That's one of my second major, and I have incredible, incredible professors who are ag common ag leadership professionals who do an incredible job of of really sh telling their stories authentically, at what it's been like to be a woman in the ag industry, and to be transparent and authentic and encouraging all at the same time. And you know, I think that we do have such a a vital voice and a creative ability and perspective to tell stories from. I, th I still think there's lots of room for growth. I, I've been telling a funny story lately about I was an intern with the Arkansas Youth Expo and Mr. Eric Walker, and I can't say enough praises about what they're doing there. I'm excited to, to keep working with them in the years to come, but communications intern, and I was in the livestock office, and I had on some loafers, which are not very ag shoes, I recognize. Most people would probably wear them in the office, but I was wearing loafers that day because they looked really cute with my outfit. A guy told me, he pointed at my shoes and said, honey, you're wearing the wrong shoes. And I was like, oh, well, no, I'm not. And he was like, well, those aren't for the, the show ring. 
And I was like, well, I mean, they can if I, I want them to be. And so I think that we've still got work to do in terms of setting a perspective where we have less cliche ideas about what it means to be a woman in the ag industry. Because I think, you know, I should be able to wear whatever shoes I want and be taken just as seriously where I can wear the color pink or skinny jeans or a dress if that's what I think is best, you know, and to, to still be taken seriously. I think I want to be someone who starts to create to change some of those some of those norms of what it looks like to be a woman in the ag industry because I'm not traditional and I, I don't have intentions of ever of ever trying to be because I think that there's there's power in that and I think as women we just have to be be confident enough and also determined enough to know that whoever we show up as is exactly what the industry is looking for and if it isn't the right fit at the beginning to be bold enough to keep pursuing it until you find your right fit where you can do good work for our industry and, and be a confident, powerful, and, and add value to the agricultural industry as a woman in our industry. And, and that's all I hope to do. So That's all. I just hope to do that. I'm just going to change the world and wear the shoes I want <laughs> and the color I want. That's yes. all. You say that, like, it, and I know you're going to do it. There is no doubt in my mind that you are absolutely going to do that. Okay. Very quickly in 60 seconds or less, what's one message you want to share before we wrap it up here? My life motto is love louder. And I haven't talked about it yet, but in high school, I was in a situation where I was in an argument with one of my very best friends and I didn't know how to react. And I remember telling my mom that I just felt like I needed to love her louder than our situation. And so there's one thing I want anyone, I mentioned it about my brand earlier to know about me is that my encouragement is always to make your loudest reaction to, to love people, because I think that that's the reaction we most often want to receive from others. And so I think when you put that out into the world, that goodness, you're more likely to receive it. So if there's one message, I would say it's that I want love to be the loudest reaction we all intentionally make. Mm, Okay. I absolutely love that. What a wonderful way to wrap up our Women in Industry podcast today. And I want to thank you so much, Brooke, for joining the communications group today for the Women in Industry podcast. We are, I mean, genuinely inspired by you and we wish you continued success on your professional journey. Thank you so much. Please check out our Women in Industry page on comgroup.com to see more incredible and inspiring women like Brooke Bradford. You can find these stories from other women on our Win podcast page and you can find the podcast on most of your favorite podcast listening apps, but especially Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And while you're in that app, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe to the Win Podcast. Share it with your friends. And now we're going to leave you with some homework. Please nominate that inspiring woman that you know, that woman in industry. We're interested in all all industries. Nominate her for recognition. There are so many of them out there that are worthy. Again, the nomination form is on our website, comgroup.com. That goes for you too, Brooke. You have to nominate somebody. That's your homework. Will do. Okay. This is Lisa Van Hook from the Communications Group here with my co-host, Carson Horn, saying thank you for joining us. Keep on inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us in this week's episode of The Win Podcast. The Women in Industry podcast is presented by the Communications Group to celebrate professional women and their achievements. For more information about today's guest and others like her, or to nominate a woman in industry for recognition, click on over to comgroup.com. Join in on the WIN conversation by visiting the WIN social channels on Instagram or Facebook, 
or check out our Com Group social channels on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Win Podcast is hosted by Com Group Executive Vice President Lisa Van Hook and PR Director Carson Horn and produced by Cassie Booker. To learn more about how the Communications Group can help you achieve your business goals, contact us today at info at comgroup.com.